So I wanted to finish up this uh, series of talks on self-view by uh, looking at a a very important uh, category in this regard. And and this is um, self-view as it relates to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is a, it's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, And uh, really just to review some of the things we've been saying, that the the Buddhist practices in a way, uh, it can be characterized as a complete reorientation of what we know uh, about suffering and getting free of suffering. And and so we've seen, uh, certainly through our practice, some of the things we've been reflecting on, that the old ways don't work. The habits of the mind to want things to be some way other than the way they are, that's the way to end suffering, just make it be some other way. Or to uh, fight it, or to resist it, or just to go on and on and on about it. You know, how many times have you seen your mind doing that while sitting here in practice? That these, these things uh, don't bring us to the end of suffering. They present as a remedy, they present as a solution to difficulty as it arises, but they don't actually deliver in a way. And, and actually these are all the strategies of the sense of self. They're all the, the fabrication, if you will, of self-view itself. And, but until we practice, we don't really know that. We don't, uh, how would we? You know, we're just kind of caught in it. The identification, the sense of this being who we are and the, the ways that we've come to know as a, the remedies for suffering um, are somehow going to deliver someday. <laughs> you know, that's how we've been looking at it. So uh, practicing with the four foundations of mindfulness, and we come, gradually we just come to see through these old ways and, and uh, the teachings and the study of those teachings is a huge support in this regard. So, you know, we want to have a, a, a good working knowledge of the Dhamma. And it's interesting because a lot of us come to practice through retreats and through meditation and, and that alone. But most people that I've talked to say that their practice didn't really take off until they started to study the teachings, until they understood what the Buddha was pointing to. And so that, because basically what that does is it, it gives us a, a, a working knowledge of the Dhamma so that we know what to look at and we know in, in, in a way what we're seeing when we're looking. Um, and, and the Buddha puts this so beautifully and so clearly in this fourth foundation uh, of mindfulness. So we want to we understand the teachings and not um, for purely acad- academic purposes, but actually to uh, apply them and to be able to see for ourselves what the Buddha is pointing to. The practice is all about doing what the Buddha did, seeing the truth of all of this for ourselves. So the the first three foundations of mindfulness, where we're looking at the body, sensations in the body, we're looking at feeling, we're looking at uh, the mind and the various states of mind and moods of the mind. These are all setting the stage, if you will, for the fourth. It's not, and the fourth foundation is all about what we see, what we want to see and how we see it. Um, And it's not like the, it's all about the insights, but it's not like the insights aren't happening all along. But there has to be a a, a relatively high degree of non-attachment through looking at body, feeling, and mind um, over the months and years of practice and cultivating a capacity to look in a way that isn't constantly grabbing them before we can really uh, work with the insights of, of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. 
So now the, the, the difficulty might emerge when you read the fourth foundation of mindfulness, you know, and you go, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, this is just chakra block full, you know, because what the Buddha is guiding us to is uh, uh, understanding these groups of, of uh, teachings, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases and their objects, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. And basically, this is the package. This is what you want to be able to see and understand uh, through the months and years of our practice. And I mean, that's a huge list, but you know, it's interesting when you do study the teachings to realize that, you know, dependent origination isn't even in that list. You know, <laughs> that's a massive one. Um, so is the teaching on the law of karma. That, that's not, they aren't in there, they're implied, but they aren't in there directly. Or, the, or, or even the teaching on the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. They, they're all part of this process of waking up, but you know, it, it doesn't, uh, they aren't even in there. So, you know, the, the mind can start to look at this and, and, and go a little bonkers just figuring out how, how am I going to see all this stuff. You know, one time we taught a course on it um, over at the um, study center and uh, there was, you know, uh, it was a, a five-day course, there's five categories, so we thought, well, we'll do a category each day. You know, and, and by Wednesday, people were going, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what to look at. What am I supposed to be looking at? How am I supposed to be looking, you know? And so just to relax around it and acknowledge that this, uh, it, it can feel like an awesome task, but, um, or and, um, we're already doing it much more than we realize. You know, and, and, and trust that, know that. If you don't believe yourself, believe me. You know, you're doing it much more than you realize than, than, than you're, that you're doing already. So I, 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 I find it just very helpful to contemplate what the Buddha's getting at with this fourth foundation of mindfulness and just try to demystify it. I mean, I, I've always been one to just kind of look at the practical nature of it all. I mean, and to me, the Buddha is nothing if he's not practical and reasonable. He's, he's basically pointing to something. You can get caught in the language. You can stumble on the language and fail to see um, uh, the, the simplicity, really, in a way, of what it is that he's saying. So he, he wants us to, to, to see um, how all of our suffering uh, is linked uh, right here. It's, it's kind of being uh, presented to us right here. And to see how... Um, it's all linked with stilling the mind. We've got to still the mind. You've got to find a way to quiet the mind, develop that uh, viveka like I was referring to this morning um, so that you can see clearly. And, and it's all uh, has to do with overcoming attachment. You know, that, that impulse of the mind to just keep grabbing hold. And, you know, here you are, you were just quiet, still, minding your old business, and boom, you know, the mind just grabs something, and all that that, uh, what proceeds from that activity of mind, that delusion of the mind. Um, and we want to be able to see the truth of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And that's very difficult to see when we're standing up too close. You know, I once experienced it like um, uh, trying to look at what's happening, like, like as if you were standing in front of a mirror and you put your nose and pressed it up against the mirror and you try to see yourself, you know. You can't see because you're up too close. Something, you know, we have to stand back and develop this new relationship in the observing. And from that vantage point, things look a lot different. 
So Bhikkhu Bodhi points to this list, uh, these five categories that are in the fourth foundation of mindfulness as a progression. And I like that. I I found that to be apt. You know, they're they're the things that we need to see into uh, in in practice. However, he's saying don't see it as something linear. It's not necessarily linear, but it's more something that uh, is a gradual uh, unfolding. And and I like that because uh, each one uh, definitely appears to um, mature out of the one that uh, precedes it. So just uh, see if this is not, uh, if this isn't your experience as you practice. So looking first at the five hindrances. You know, we begin um, with clarity and skill regarding these. We've got to see and understand these habits of mind. And, And it's just pointing to the need to clear the mind of reactivity. You know, the five hindrances are... You know, I like to call them the, the unawakened mind's best guess at what to do about anicca, dukkha, and anatta. You know, they're just, they're clam- it's a habit of mind that's clamoring, trying to deal with uh, uh, uncertainty, with difficulty, and with a lack of control. And the, the thing is, uh, uh, when it's doing that, it's not settled down. There's like an anxiety, there's this relentless, restless agitation in the mind as it, it keeps trying to deal with things that it, it can't do anything about, <laughs> but it doesn't know that yet, yeah? You know, the, the, the Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta are the way it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a process of unfolding that and seeing that for ourselves. So, I mean, the, the, what the Buddha is pointing to here in the, in the hindrances is it's just so sensible, it's so reasonable. You know, you, you've seen this, and I'm sure you've seen what it's like when you can muster some kind of settling out of these hindrances, even if it's only for a few seconds, even if you only get a glimmer, but certainly so if, if you're able to establish yourself and sustain um, uh, you know, some period of time where you're not being caught up in them. So, but in the unawakened mind, in the unawakened state, uh, we're just, uh, we just tend to be at the mercy of these five hindrances. Um, and you're just getting caught in them endlessly from one moment to the next. Uh, and, and getting free of them is all about discovering for ourselves, in a way, how useless they are. <laughs> you know, over and over again. The, the mind keeps turning to things like hatred, aversion, you know, and, and not seeing that the state that it's turning to to free itself from difficulty is itself enormously difficult. You know, that in, in a way it, the mind is just compounding what is already a difficult situation by turning to these hindrances. And most importantly, I think, what happens over the years of practice, at least I can speak for myself in this, one begins to see what buying into these states is doing to us. You know, the toll that it's taking on us. It's very, very painful stuff. And I've looked a lot, for example, at, at restlessness in particular. I've always had a very restless, agitated mind. In fact, my mother told me well, the first complete sentence I spoke as a child was, you're making me nervous. <laughs> now, who knows where that came from, but there it was. You know, it was like this uh, constant uh, agitation in the body and in the mind. And, and just seeing how hard it is on the body in particular. 
You know, if you, if you watch yourself as you practice here, how many times a day, or maybe when you lay down to bed at night, have you caught yourself just hunched up, you know, or the jaw is clenched, you know, or, or um, in one way or another, maybe the belly is tight and not relaxed, not loose. You know, this is restless agitation in the mind and the toll that it's taking on both the mind and the body. It's very, very painful stuff. It's very, very hard on the nervous system. You know, we don't, we don't know that because it, it presents as something that's useful. <laughs> you know, worry about it. That'll help. That's, that's what it presents as. And, and, and just so looking at it, you learn a lot by um, just examining whether this state uh, affords any, any peace at all. And maybe the flip side of that, I mean, in my own mind, I've just seen how uh, life can at at times be, uh, it's almost like a ricochet between restlessness and anxiety and sloth and torpor. It's like you hurry, 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 and then you you don't have any more energy left. You've used it all up with this uh, agitation in the mind. And so there's nothing left to do but just to pass out, you know, or to drift and dream. And these drifty, dreamy states present as uh, something pleasant, as a, as a pleasant abiding. But, you know, you don't have to look at them very much to begin to realize that these, this is not pleasant states. I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, Annie and I talk to people about all the time in the interviews, uh, how ma- many people struggle with sloth and torpor. I don't want to be in that state. I mean, it's, it's a painful state. And, and, uh, and yet there it is. I mean, you, you spend a tremendous amount of effort and energy and even money to get here and to practice in this way. And then, um, you know, one can spend a lot of the time half asleep. I, mean, I, I know it. I've done it. And, you know, I can remember one time many, one, years ago in one of my first trips to the monastery where, um, you know... it's a lot of money to get there. It's a lot of effort, you know, planes and trains and cars and, and, uh, you know, uh, expense. And then finding myself uh, sitting in the back of the hall and and getting one of those big heavy wool English blankets that you can cover yourself with and because they're so stiff and thick, nobody can see that you're sitting there like this, you know, <laughs> for sleep in, in the back of the hall and going way in the way in the back in these little alcoves where they keep the extra cushions and um, you know, and, and, and just contemplating and realizing that, my goodness, I've come all this way. I've, I've, I've gone to all this effort and all I want to do is, is I want Ajahn to stop talking so, so I can go to bed, you know, so I can just go to sleep and dream. Or maybe not even expecting that to happen, but just dreaming right where I am, you know. How many times have you done that? I mean, these are, I don't think I'm the only one that does this <laughs> or has done this, you know. So it, it, what the Buddha is pointing to is being able to see um, how much we suffer with these states, how much we suffer with them. And that has to be a direct knowledge, direct experience. And, and so, you know, you can hear these teachings of the teachings and the, of the hindrances and they sound so harsh and so heavy-handed. But in a way, I, I find them one of the most loving uh, offerings that he has given us, you know, just 
you know, pay attention to these uh, hindrances when they arise and uh, realize how uh, grabbing hold of them um, is uh, not only, the states in themselves are not only difficult, but the grabbing hold and the lingering in them and the things that they cause us to do, the places where they take us. It's just just like this road towards more and more and more suffering. And yet they're presenting as remedies for suffering. And and so just to discover this for ourselves, we we have to find a way to simply know uh, these mental states and to know them without any judgment, without any criticism, you know, without any idea that, that somehow they shouldn't be there. And here's how he puts it in the sutta, um, in the fourth foundation. He says, when sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, doubt, when this is present in me, one understands this state is present in me. That's it. And then he goes on to say, when that, those states, when the, all those five hindrances are, is not present in me, one understands this is not present in me. And then one understands how they arise, how the uh, arising of the non-arisen hindrance comes to be, how the abandoning of the arisen hindrance comes to be, and how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned hindrance comes to be. Now you can hear that language and go, what in the heck is he saying, <laughs> you know? But let's un- just, just unpack it. You know, um, it, it can see like, seem like there's a lot to do, but it's really very, very simple what he's saying. And I submit you're all already doing it. We just need to understand it as such. So this first part says, um, there is sense desire and the other hindrances in me. It, it's simply saying that one is aware of this as a state. One is aware of a hindrance in the mind as a state. Can you, can you feel the impartiality that one would have to muster in order to be able to see it in that way? That's what it's pointing to, that kind of impartiality. It's, it's radical <laughs> in a way, because up until the time that we practice or consider looking at it in this way, that's me. And that is my response to what's happening and it's absolutely appropriate and the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, but the, the Buddha is saying, no, stand back and just say, okay, let's, let's have a look at it. There is sense, desire, ill will, etc. in me. And, and notice that he, he doesn't say, I'm aware of it, and then I smack myself around for that. <laughs> That's not what he's saying here, right? <laughs> I'm just aware of it. I know it as such. And the second part is very important and often forgotten, I think, in practice, because it flips it over and it says we also need to know when the hindrances are not there. You know, in, in myself and certainly a lot of people I've talked to, you know, you hear a teaching like the hindrances and something that's bad and, and in the way of liberation and, you know, the tendency is to pounce and, and become preoccupied with the hindrances. And, and so in a way it can aggravate the situation. You know, it can make it even worse. When, when um, really 
this critical component of recognizing that if we're just observing from this detached perspective, moment to moment, our moment to moment experience, we'll see that, you know, sometimes it's, uh, I'm, I'm not always, always filled with these hindrances. It, it's not the way it is all of the time. And we're not always caught up. This um, self-critical thinking, ideas in the mind make us think that we are. But the, the, so the mind needs to see that um, very frequently we're not in these hindrances, and uh, and instead we're being very generous and kind and, and calm and and clear. And those moments can easily be missed. You know, equanimity, looking on with impartiality, means you're not just you're not just only looking. It's not selective attention. You know, you're not only looking at the stuff that needs to be cleared out. You're looking also with equal interest and vigor at the at the stuff that uh, is arising that's very skillful and is also arising spontaneously. And I know you're you're all here. You're not talking to each other. You may not know each other or anything like that but I can tell you that everybody here at the Forest Refuge is very nice (laughs) very nice very kind very generous people yeah so we want to be we want to be able to see that in ourselves and in each other that's a critical player in this process I mean the Buddha says it right here in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. He talks about it when he talks about right effort, you know, as well, the four great efforts, be able to uh, sustain skillful states, see and sustain skillful states. So those are the first two parts of that. And, but the last three parts are also very important, and they have to do with noticing and discovering for ourselves how these states are operating. How do the hindrances come into being? You've seen them enough. You know, how does it happen? How do they come into being? And o- over the, uh, the months and years of practice, one has to come to the conclusion that they're arising uh, uh, of their own accord. They're arising out of habit. They're arising out of what the Buddha calls vipaka karma, resultant karma. So that means that when the conditions are right for them to arise, when all the various uh, conditions come together, uh, this habit uh, to react in this way will arise when those conditions are there. And, but w- and with an enough imp- uh, partiality, then sooner or later, one realizes that. And so you start to see the impersonal nature of all of this. You, you, you've been looking at it long enough, don't you, don't you see? And that's true that um, if you could not ever, 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 ever again have one of these five hindrances arise in your mind, wouldn't you do it? <laughs> I sure would. <laughs> so it, it's, it's got to be something that's not subject to our control. It's got to be something that's operating according to its own laws. It's operating, it's karma. It's operating according to the laws of karma. That's very. That's a very helpful piece of information, you know. If you if you notice it, if you see it for yourself. And so, how are they released? They're released by learning to attend to them wisely 
And, and, and knowing, that means knowing them for what they are. You know, the, a, an arisen phenomenon, an arisen event that's coming up because the conditions are right for that to happen. And, and uh, uh, they're, we, they're released because we don't grab them because the understanding is there, the clear seeing is there, such that we let them do, uh, we let them rise and pass away. We don't do anything to feed them or breathe them into life when they arise. You know, and, and you, you know, we all know what this is like. You know, every now and then you get, you get that kind of perspective, don't you? It's like, whoa. You know, there's that greedy impulse. And, but you saw it. You see it right there when that's coming up. And, and you can feel it. It's like as if the mind goes, eh. You know, it's, it's not interested. It, it, it turns away gradually over time because we're, we're attending to them wisely. We understand their nature and so we're not caught. And then the final bit where he says, he says you know, what does it take to keep them at bay? This is what we're practicing with, what we're discovering as we practice here at the Forest Refuge. And, you know, I was speaking to this somewhat this morning, the, the concentrated mind, the quiet mind, the mind that is at ease and, and at, at peace, um, it, and the wise mind, the mind that knows their nature and so it's not fooled. You know, this is why a lot of people uh, report that, um, they often report that they had a good sitting. And when, you know, you ask, well, what, did, what, did, what was a good sitting? What constituted a good sitting? Um, you know, across the board, it, it, it's it's a sitting where there was some peace, where the where the mind got quiet, and so the the mental hindrances couldn't get any footing, you know, or got less footing, or they were able to see it more clearly, you know. And this is why things like the the jhanas or samadhi are so attractive, because um, the way the Buddha puts it is that. Um, in those states, you're secluded from the hindrances. It's a, it's a temporary, but it's good enough <laughs> because you get to see that the mind indeed can um, dwell in states that are not caught up like this and not uh, difficult suffering states. So in order to, to clear the mind in, in this way of the hindrances, we have to contemplate. And it's important to get a handle on, on the hindrances. And I think that's why the Buddha puts it first. You know, settle down. See the, uh, what perturbs the mind. And find a way to be, to exist, to dwell outside of those uh, perturbations. And see, see it for ourselves. We have to break through them and uncover them. So as these uh, five hindrances are, are overcome, or at least as they're weakened, and uh, it doesn't, it, as again, this isn't linear. You don't have to like overcome all the five hindrances before you can go on to looking at the aggregates or the sense, the sense bases. But what, um, once there is some clearing in this way, the mind is actually clear enough to begin to examine these next two categories, which are the, the aggregates and the sense spaces are all about attachment. <laughs> we we want to be able to see um, this habit of the mind to attach. And again, what that's doing to us. So from this clearer uh, vantage point, from releasing the, the hindrances, we're, we're, um, 
we become a lot more aware of, of how we're constantly, almost incessantly preoccupied with what's going on with the body and mind. You know, a little uh, impulse here and it's, it's like the mind pounces. A thought, the mind grabs. A memory, the mind breathes it back into life. And so the, the aggregates, body, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, uh, one wants to see how we're attaching to these how we're grabbing hold of these, and how that translates into um, self-view. That's, that movement is also another way that we characterize the, the formation of self and self-view. So, I mean, just, you just consider, you know, if, if we're not caught up in, in hating uh, physical pain, for example, you know, if, if, you're, if the hindrance is at bay, maybe you... you you, you get a pain in your knee or pain in your back that arises as you're practicing here. Uh, and and it, it, we're not relating to that through the hindrances, right? So if that's not happening, then what happens is you, you can see, you, be, you start to look into the, the nature of what it is that we're calling physical pain and see how it's a, this clustering of elemental forces, earth, air, fire, and water, in varying degrees of balance and imbalance. You know, just talking to one of the meditators here today in, 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 the, in an interview, and he was seeing this. He was seeing, the, the contemplating um, physical pain and uh, not seeing it as physical pain, but seeing it as this um, clustering of the elements. Or maybe perhaps, you know, if we're not getting anxious about a relationship in our lives or about something that we have to do or something that happened, a memory, you know, and when that comes up and the mind gets all flustered and agitated and anxious in relation to that, if that's not happening, then one is able to begin to see, I'm, re- I'm remembering, I'm imagining I'm, I'm thinking about that relationship that's difficult, yeah? That's a very, oh man, that is a radically different experience than being caught in that memory or, or trying to deal with uh, that relationship uh, as you're practicing here. They, they, these, these ideas come up into the mind, these thoughts come up into the mind, and we repeatedly take the bait. The mind starts to deal with the pain of something that isn't happening now. <laughs> What's happening now is we're thinking. Yeah, and so it, it can't see that because uh, the hindrance, the agitation, the anxiety, the fear uh, around that particular memory dominates and pulls us in. But now, uh, as, if that's at bay, then um, we can look at it differently, right? And this is, you know, one, another of the yogis today was reporting this kind of seeing. And it's so exciting to, to hear that, to, to see people getting free of these habits of mind, to relate in ways that aren't serving us. You know, the hindrances don't serve. And yet seeing the attachment to memory, to the formations, to feelings of pleasure, pain, and neither, that does serve us. <laughs> That we want to be able to see. But we can't see in this way as long as we're reacting to the hindrances. 
So when it, when it comes to the aggregates, the five aggregates, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if you've explored the Samyutta Nikaya, which is a, a, it's a, a large uh, volume of suttas that uh, are, are co- sort of uh, clustered according to themes and ideas. And um, it's called the connected discourses. So there's like, for example, there's a whole samyutta on dependent origination. All of the discourses that have to do with dependent origination will be compiled there. You know, and there's another one that has to do with devas and all, all the uh, and angelic kingdoms, you know, all the times that the Buddha talked to them or they appeared. Those are all clustered in one. Uh, the same things with sila and, and things of this nature. Well, there, there's a there's a samyutta on the khandas, the five aggregates, and uh, you know if you look through that, there's like there's like 200 suttas in there, all that that all have to do with the the aggregates, and they all every the theme in every single one of them is uh, uh, directing us to see that the aggregates are not self, <laughs> that that the Body, feeling, uh, perception, formations, and consciousness are not self. And that's a radical teaching right there. You know, the Buddha is trying to get us to see that this is something that enormously intimate and personal. Sure, it feels like me, you know. But he's trying to get us to a way of relating to this, uh, what we're experiencing in the body and mind, and recognize this as not being self but rather to recognize that this is how the body behaves, this is how the mind behaves, and the whole phenomenon of uh, having a body, having a mind, is not a personal experience. (laughs) It sounds nuts when you first hear it, or think about it even, but uh, he's pointing to a very precise and subtle observing and knowing of those experiences. So here's the language uh, of the sutta. He says, this is how we need to relate to the five aggregates. Such is material form, such its origin, such its disappearance. Such is feeling, such its origin, such its disappearance. Such is perception, such its origin, such its disappearance. Such is formations, such their origin, such their disappearance. Such is consciousness, such its origin and such its disappearance. So I think the language there is very interesting to contemplate. You know, just the use of that word such, you know, it, it, it's very um, impersonal and unattached. It, it conveys or connotes a sense of being, looking right at it and going, oh, such a, there's a memory, such is a memory. <laughs> Here it comes, there it goes. Yeah? Can you feel that? You're, you're back so far from it that you not only know that it is that, but you're also seeing it come and go. That's, that's a very important teaching. Here it comes, there it goes. That's what he's pointing to. So it obviously it speaks to a high, high degree of impartiality when we're observing this body and mind, you know, so that... Uh, both of which, the body and mind, that we take to be very, very intimate and personal. But through practice, and with the guidance of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we begin to know these aggregates for what they are, and, and aren't fooled into identifying with them. 
you know, and, and look and just look in your experience and see. I, I, I'm sure you've experienced this to know that um, there's a pattern or a habit in the mind, to know that you're finding something unpleasant, to know that there's a memory or a fantasy or a plan. Yeah? That, and and, you, and you, you've, we've had that experience. We know what he's talking about here. Such is memory, such is that. We know in intense physical pain, for example, we know that clustering of the elements and, and we know it as such and we can see it come and see it go. We know memory and ideas in the same way. So this, what this point is pointing to, this means that um, we see through direct observation that the body and mind are happening and they're happening because we got born. <laughs> it's as simple as that. They go with the territory of birth. It, sound, you know, it, it sounds nuts, but it's true. That, that there's nothing to be done about it. I, I, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I don't know how we got here, but here we are. And this is how it is. And this is how it operates. This is how the body behaves. This is how the mind behaves. And it's in our interest to stop getting so caught up in all of it, but to turn to it and see if we can learn about it. It's, it's like it's home. Don't, don't you, you, you want to find out what home is like. I mean, I don't know about you, but if ever I go to a motel or somebody's home for the first time, I, like, I, I do this thing where I just kind of explore. I want to know where I am, you know. I want to know what, the, uh, what I'm dealing with. But we don't even think to do that with this home. <laughs> this is it. You know, this is body and mind. It's the closest home we've got. So the Buddha says, feeling arises out of contact. It ar- and look and see. Um, this has to be seen directly. You know, you, so you have this feeling of pleasure, pain, and neither. But are you doing that? Or is it just happening? And he's, he's saying the latter very clearly. And we, we have to be able to see that. So that, that um, it, it doesn't make sense to go bonkers because something uh, is, is unpleasant. It, it's just, it, it happens. It's a, it's a highly conditioned response in a way. Uh, and, and you're not making it happen. And so the idea here is to begin to realize that how that, that, that um, feeling happens because there is contact. It arises in every moment of contact. And, and, and also uh, perception. Perception arises with every moment of contact. And these two, feeling and perception, arise together with every moment's arising. Formations arise whether they're skillful or unskillful, they arise as a fruit of past actions. That's, it's, I find that enormously liberating. <laughs> There's nothing to be done about it. You know, we're going to, there, there may be the arising of e- even difficult states um, because there is the habit of that. That doesn't say anything about what we do when that state arises. And that doesn't say anything about who we are because that state arise, arises. Yeah? Fabulous stuff. And consciousness, too, arises out of, out of contact. Just the connection between the organ and the object. 
And so we see that um, these are all uh, arising and vanishing due to conditions. That's the, where the Buddha is always pointing to the conditioned nature of things. They are not self. And that's, that's the sort of the dichotomy, you know, that we really want to be able to take to heart. So in, in short, there's, uh, there's wise uh, reflection with regard to the aggregates. We don't consider them permanent because they aren't. We don't uh, consider them um, self because they aren't. And we don't imagine in any way that grabbing hold of them as being who we are is pleasant because it is not. (laughs) We all know that as practitioners. It's not a pleasant experience to repeatedly be relating to these aggregates from the vantage point of self. So, I mean, I hope that's helpful. I mean, this is, it can sound so far out, but that's what he's saying. This is what he's saying here. And it's not mysterious. It's very, very simple. So, and now there's the teaching of the the six sense bases. And here's what he says uh, in the fourth foundation. He says, one understands the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. One understands forms, sounds, odors, flavors, touches, and mind objects. And one understands the fetter that arises in relation to these. So it's very simple. He's saying, be attuned to what is going on at the sense doors. There's the eye, there's the thing that it sees, and there's something that happens in relation to these. This movement of the mind to grab hold of what is happening with greed, hatred, or delusion um, arises quite spontaneously and quite habitually in relation to what um, we're experiencing at the, sen- the level of the senses. And this is, this is really a very powerful teaching. It's a, actually, Ajahn Chah would uh, point a number of times to the fact that it was this teaching that was the key to his own liberation. So uh, one of the, I'd like to pull in on this one. One, one of the most famous uh, suttas in the Pali Canon comes from the Odana. And the, it's where the Buddha is talking to this monk named Bahia. Um, he describes a skillful relating to what's arising at the sense basis. I'm sure you've heard it, but here it is. Uh, he says, Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene there is only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself, he says. And so it's interesting, this sutta is often used as a a kind of a way to summarize what is real, that that's basically all that there is, the seen, the heard, the cognized, uh, in in that respect. And and it does that. But um, my sense is that it's it's not so much um, kind of making a a theoretical statement about what is, but it's actually offering an instruction to us as meditators. It's actually pointing us to how it is that we need to try to learn to be with what's happening. Uh, and because he says you should train yourself in this way. Uh, this is how you should train. He's pointing to a training. But what's often uh, 
not quoted is the rest of the sutta, which is, I mean, where he goes after that is, is astounding to me. He, he says, um, he, he, he promises something quite beautiful. He says, when for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there will be no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder, nor between the two. (laughs) This, just this, is the end of suffering. That's a good one to chew on, isn't it? (laughs) No you there, no you in reference to this. So in practical terms, what that means is that when we we see an attractive or repulsive or a, a neutral object, we know that we're seeing an attractive or repulsive or a neutral object. That that's that's the the first part of it, and we're, and we're, so because of that knowing, we're not lured into it. We're not lured into grabbing it, and and from this new vantage point, if you will, you can you begin to be able to see the glue. You know, it's fine to have the object there, but this doesn't always have to happen. It's a very liberating experience to be able to see with be with things that we find attractive and not have this happen. You know, to be able to be with things that we find unattractive and not have this happen. You know, to, to be able to see, be with things that we find neutral and not pass out, you know, not fall asleep around them. But, uh, you know, for the fetter, there would be a no suffering. But for the greed, hatred, and delusion that arises in relation to the seen, the heard, the cognized, etc. There would be no suffering. I think that's what he's saying here. And pointing to that very, very clearly. So he's actually saying that it's the, the fetter, that is, the greed, hatred, and the delusion uh, are what constitute the sense of self and what characterize suffering, where the suffering is getting born. So, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, then, if we ask, you know, why, why am I suffering? We, we take it to a very phenomenological level. I'm sure you've heard this many, many times. We say that in one way or another, we're suffering because of, because of that fetter. Because whatever was happening at the sixth sense doors, this mind grabbed it, got born into it, attached to it in one way or another. And so the, the idea here is just as it's laid out in the first three foundations of mindfulness, is to see sensation as sensation, see feeling as feeling, see mental states as mental states, and leave it at that. I mean, there's many different ways the Buddha says that throughout the teachings. Leave it at that, leave it at the sense doors, put that centurion at the sense doors, guard it, don't let, it, don't let yourself go into that state of, of uh, attachment and grabbing. So now it's really getting good, yeah? And we're getting into the seven factors of awakening. That's, that's what's next. Uh, and 
because of all of this practice with the hindrances, with attachment to the aggregates, with attachment to what's going on at the senses and learning how to navigate all of that terrain. Now the seven factors of awakening are starting to rear their heads, you know. <laughs> and it's very, very exciting and very, very interesting and all proceeding from the experience of mindfulness. And, and, and it's because uh, uh, mindfulness is quite strong by now. You know, you're able to, we're able to see what's going on and um, hold it from this uh, less attached vantage point. So mindfulness initiates the, the contemplation. And, you know, as we've said, through mindfulness we're discern, discerning the distinct aspects of experience and leaving it at that and not get, getting caught up, st- being able to stand free. So we, we, when we let go in this way, then, you know, just c- contemplate even the word mindfulness. The mind is full of whatever it is that's happening. So that means it's not erratic, it's not toing and froing, it's not uh, going on about what's happening, it's just looking at it. It's just very full with that. And uh, this is where the quality of interest or investigation gets very, very high. You know, the, the, you, you look at what's going on and it, uh, you're looking right at it and going, well, that's interesting. That, how is that happening? How is that operating? You know, the interest, the investigation is very, very strong. And, and um, you know, if, if you, what, what one feels in that is that um, it's almost like all the other stuff that we used to preoccupy ourselves with. It's like, oh, go away. This is much more interesting, <laughs> you know. I want, I want to look at uh, what's happening in my mind. That, that, when, when that gets going, man, the, the investigation factor of, of awakening is running very, very strong. And what you see very clearly, uh, when, that gets, when you get up a full head of steam on that, um, the, you'll, you'll notice how much more energy you have for practice how, because, the in, because the mindfulness and the interest are so strong. You know, uh, the, the self-absorption. You look at how much energy we tie up thinking about ourselves and going on about what's going on <laughs> in our lives and in our minds. And just, uh, it's exhausting, isn't it? Well, wh- what's it like when that's not happening? Wow. You know, you freed up a tremendous amount of energy for, for practice. Uh, and the, the heart begins to experience a, a lot of joy. In fact, people say they get so happy sometimes, they get kind of giddy and their, their, their body hair will stand up on edge, you know. It's like, it's all, it's so exciting. Um, and, and really, if you look at the excitement, it's, it's just basically because we're here. <laughs> we're here, we're actually here. Uh, and and um, knowing what here is. So the, the joy uh, factor of awakening gets very, very heightened. And, and people often ask about joy and, and practice. They want to know, where's the joy, you know. Where's the joy in practice? Well, it may not be the kind of joy that you, you anticipate, but uh, the joy of not, of having a mind that isn't always toing and froing, <laughs> that isn't going on about this, that, and the other thing. You know, it's, uh, it, it, that is actually uh, present, feet rooted on the ground, uh, awake and aware. You know, we, we know that feeling, don't we? It's delicious. And, and uh, 
one, one uh, sees it arise spontaneously through the, the progress of practice. And what happens over time with that, and um, you know, it can be in a, in a moment, uh, in, in a few moments, but it can be over the, the, the months and years, I think, of practice, is that you begin to, to trust. Um, first, it's kind of like when you see the fruits of practice, um, when you can feel a little giddy, you know, a little excited, happy, uh, and that, that's this sort of stirred up feeling of joy. But over time, you really, we really begin to trust that. We really know that we're on the right path. We know the, uh, the path is unfolding in a, in a, a, a very deliberate and, and fortunate way. And so that the giddiness starts to subside and uh, opens up into um, what the Buddha calls tranquility. It's a, it's a happy, happy heart. It's a peaceful heart. It, but it's not this stirred up kind of peaceful. It, and it's, a, it's actually a very, very pleasant abiding and um, one that surpasses in many ways the, the happiness or the, the uh, excitement of, of joy. And then, of course, as we know, this um, um, it, it forms a basis for a deeply concentrated mind a mind that is able to look and, and pierce into what's happening. One isn't uh, distracted anymore, not co- pulled into reactive patterns or not drawn into the hindrances. And of course the crowning glory of the seven factors is, is equanimity. You know, we, as we progress through these first six, then the, the mind becomes so stable that it, it just um, moves into a state that just consistently greets whatever's arising with a very uh, equanimous heart. There's no uh, preference for one thing over another. It's just this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. So there's no quarreling or carrying on about anything. So these, these seven are the hallmarks of a mind that we call free. It's beyond the personal. Something has moved in the mind beyond the personal. We've taken it to that level. And so finally we're able to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. And um, here's what the Sutta says about the the Four Noble Truths. One understands as it actually is. There is suffering. Yeah? (laughs) That first Noble Truth is a... It's hard one because it's pointing to a quality of heart that looks difficulty straight in the eye and knows it, <laughs> knows it as such and doesn't expect it to be any other way. There is dukkha. It goes with the territory of being born. One understands that as it actually is, this is the origin of suffering. One understands as it actually is, this is the cessation of suffering. One understands as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So we have to realize these all in, in the same way that the Buddha realized them, you know, through our own direct experience. And, and so one way of, of, of um, summing up practice, if you will, is, is that we, we learn that there's, there's, there's really no reason to go into battle with difficulty. 
You know, this is, again, this is a, a very mature level of practice, but we, we come to it gradually. We can come to it in a moment, we come to it in a very stable way over the years of practice. But there's no reason to battle with difficulty. Uh, we're actually just compounding it. The second truth, the craving, is the battling with it. <laughs> you know, just wanting it to be some other way. And so we relinquish this craving for it to be some other way. And then the, the second noble truth is overcome. The Buddha says the second noble truth needs to be overcome. And the third noble truth is realized. The cessation of suffering is realized. And there's so, obviously so much that one could say about this, but I, I love how Ajahn Chah puts it so simply. He says that the teachings say that wherever suffering arises, that is where non-suffering arises too. It ceases at the place where it began, right there. And, and so, you know, we've all experienced that exquisite feeling of just being able to see a, attachment and simply let it go. You know, right there at the place where the attachment or the grabbing begins to take place, that's the same place where it gets released, Right? And just to know that and to see that for ourselves, enormously powerful. And, and uh, now it, it's fascinating because we're right back where we were before the attachment began. Now we're right back where we, where we were. And, and people who, who break through to this way of seeing uh, actually note that um, it's actually a kind of unremarkable in some ways. <laughs> Uh, unremarkable in that um, you realize that it's where you've been all along. But for the preoccupation with the fetter, the grabbing, the attachment, however you characterize that movement of the mind into difficult states, into greed, hatred, and delusion, into reactivity to what's happening, that, that as that is uh, suspended, then we're, we're where we've always been. And in a way, knowing it maybe for the first time, but um, just uh, settled into this present, this ultimate presence of mind. So, so all of this is easy to understand at one level, maybe not so easy to do, but that's why we're training and that's why we're investigating. We want to uh, see this and experience this for ourselves. So it, it sounds like a mouthful, and it is, but... You know, as I said in the beginning, I, I, I hope just by um, talking about it in practical terms, seeing it in, in terms of how it is uh, the unfolding of how we're actually practicing, that one begins to realize that very much so, all along, from day one, the first day of your first meditation retreat, this is what you've been doing. This is what we've all been doing. And so to de- demystify it, don't make it something um, far out and inaccessible, very accessible training of the mind and very possible for all of us to realize. And so may it be so for us all. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.